going back to that dance hall, said Forrest, and have one round at least with that horror herder. Welcome to McBurdo's expedition into the unknown and terrible. We have been stuck here in the ice for an eternity. Come into the captain's cabin and warm yourself before you head back out. Welcome to my cabin. How long have we been trapped in this infernal ice pack? Or in the summer, tropical estuary. Writers can embellish on a story that they've heard, but hearing the words of someone who actually witnessed an event, sometimes shocking, always amazing. I have not read this before, so we're going to experience it together. I'm going to break in with my opinions. Chances are, as you are a crew member of the HMS Miser, you are not easily upset by the dark and terrible. I will warn you now that these may not have the most politically acceptable ideas or language because they come from the past and things were different then. Hello everybody! Today, maybe lighter, a bit of the old wild west again, probably no hanging. I'm hoping it's lynching free. This is from The Log of a Cowboy, a narrative of the old trail days, and this is covering his entrance into Dodge City. So let's see how it is. At Camp Supply, Flood received a letter from Lovell requesting him to come on into Dodge ahead of the cattle. So after the first night's camp above the Cimarron, Flood caught up a favorite horse, informed the outfit that he was going to quit us for a few days, and designated Quince Forest as the Segundo during his absence. You will have wide open country from here into Dodge, he said when ready to start. And I'll make an inquiry for you daily from men coming in or from the buckboard which carries the mail to supply. I'll try and meet you at Mulberry Creek, which is about 10 miles south of Dodge. I'll make that town tonight and you ought to make Mulberry in two days. You will see the smoke of passing trains to the north of the Arkansas and from the divide south of Mulberry. If you reach that creek, in case I don't meet you, Hold the herd there, and three or four of you can come on into town. But I'm almost certain to meet you, he called back as he rode away. Famous last words. Priest, said Quince when our foreman had gone. I reckon you didn't handle your herd to suit the old man when he left us that time in Buffalo Gap. But I think he used rare judgment this time in selecting a segundo. The only thing that frets me... I'm afraid he'll meet us before we reach the Mulberry, and that won't give me any chance to go in ahead like a sure enough foreman. Fact is, I have business there. I deposited a few months' wages at the Long Branch Gambling House the last year when I was in Dodge and failed to take a receipt. Uh-oh! I just want to drop in and make inquiry if they gave me credit and if the account is drawing interest. I think it's all right, for the man I deposited it with was a clever fellow and asked me to have a drink with him just as I was leaving. Still, I'd like to step in and see him again. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah, it was a good guy. I totally left him some money and I totally 
didn't get any kind of receipt for it. There's no notation at all. Uh... Right. Early in the afternoon of the second day, after our foreman left us, we sighted the smoke of passing trains, though they were at least 15 miles distant. And long before we reached the Mulberry, a livery rig came down the trail to meet us. To Forrest's chagrin, Flood, all dressed up and with a white collar on, was the driver, while on the back seat sat Don Lovell and another cowman by the name of McNulta. Every rascal of us gave old man Don the glad hand as he drove around the herd, while he, liberal and delighted as a bridegroom, passed out the cigars by the handful. The cattle were looking fine, which put the old man in high spirits, and he inquired of each of us if our health was good and if Flood had fed us well. They loitered around the herd for the rest of the evening until we threw off the trail to graze and camp for the night when Lovell declared his intention of staying all night with the outfit. While we were catching horses during the evening, Lovell came up to me where I was saddling my night horse and recognizing me, gave me the news of my brother Bob. I had a letter yesterday from him, he said, written from Red Fork, which is just north of the Cimarron River over the Chisholm route. He reports everything is going along nicely, and I'm expecting him to show up here within a week. His herd are all beef steers and are in contracted for delivery at the Crow Indian Agency. He's not driving as fast as Flood, but we've got to have our beef for that delivery in better condition, as they have a new agent this year, and he may be one of these knowing fellows. Sorry you couldn't see your brother, but if you have any word to send him, I'll deliver it. I thanked him for the interest he had taken in me and assured him that I had no news for Robert, but took advantage of the opportunity to inquire if our middle brother, Zek, was on the trail with any of his herd. Lovell knew him, but felt positive he was not with any of his outfits. We had an easy night with the cattle. Lovell insisted on standing a guard, so he took Rod's wheat horse and stood the first watch, and after returning to the wagon, he and McNulta, to our great interest, argued the merits of different trails until near midnight. McNulta had two herds coming in on the Chisholm Trail, while Lovell had two herds on the Western, and only one on the Chisholm. The next morning, Forrest, who was again in charge, received orders to cross the Arkansas River shortly after noon, and then let half the outfit come into town. The old trail crossed the river about a mile above the present town of Dodge City, Kansas. So when we changed horses at noon, the first and second guards caught up with their top horses, ransacked their war bags, and donned their best toggery. I love it. Toggery. How awesome is that? We crossed the river about one o'clock in order to give the boys a good holiday. The stage of water making the river easily, for easily fordable. McCann, after dinner was over, drove down the south side for the benefit of a bridge which spanned the river opposite the town. It was the first bridge he had been able to take advantage of in over a thousand miles of travel, and today he spurned the cattle ford as though he had never crossed it one. Went safely over the river, and with the understanding that the herd would camp for the night about six miles north on Duck Creek, six of our men quit us and rode for the town in a long gallop. Before the rig left us in the morning, McNulta, who was thoroughly familiar with Dodge and an older man than Lovell, in a quiet, in a friendly and fatherly spirit, seeing that many of us were youngsters, had given us an earnest talk and plenty of good advice. I've been in Dodge every summer since 77, said the old cowman, and I can give you boys some points. 
Dodge is one town where the average bad man of the West not only finds his equal, but finds himself badly handicapped. The buffalo hunters and range men have protested against the iron rule of Dodge's police officers, and nearly every protest has cost human life. Don't ever get the impression that you can ride your horses into a saloon or shoot out the lights in Dodge. It may go somewhere else, but it don't go there. So I want to warn you to behave yourselves. You can wear your six-shooters into town, but you better leave them at the first place you stop, hotel, livery, or business house. And when you leave town, call for your pistols, but don't ride out shooting. Omit that. Most cowboys think it's an infringement on their rights to give up shooting in town. And if it is, it stands for your six-shooters are no match for Winchesters and Buckshot. And Dodge's officers are as game a set of men as ever faced danger. This does feel Wild West. Nearly a generation had passed since McNelta. The Texan cattle driver gave our outfit this advice one June morning on the Mulberry. And in setting down this record, I have only to scan the roster of peace officials of Dodge City to admit its correctness. Among the names that graced the official roster during the brief span of the trail days were the brothers Ed, Jim, and Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, Jack Bridges, Doc Holliday, Charles Bassett, William Tillman, Shotgun Collins, Joshua Webb, Mayor A.B. Webster, and Mysterious Dave Mather. The puppets of no romance ever written can compare with these officers in fearlessness. And let it be understood, there were plenty to protest against their rule almost daily during the range season. Some equally fearless individual defied them. Throw up your hands and surrender! said an officer to a Texas cowboy who'd spurred an excitable horse until it was rearing and plunging in the street, leveling meanwhile a double-barreled shotgun on the horseman. Not to you, you white-livered son of a was the instant reply accompanied by a shot. The officer staggered back, mortally wounded, but recovered himself, and the next instant the cowboy reeled from his saddle a load of buckshot through his breast. After the boys left us for town, the remainder of us, belonging to the third and fourth guard, grazed the cattle forward leisurely during the afternoon. Though the cattle herds were in sight both up and down the river on either side and crossing the mulberry the day before, we learned that several herds were holding out as far south as that stream, while McNulta reported over 40 herds as having already passed northward on the trail. Dodge was a meeting point for buyers from every quarter. Often herds would sell at Dodge whose destination for delivery was beyond the Yellowstone in Montana. Herds frequently changed owners when the buyers never saw the cattle. A year a yearling was a yearling and a two-year-old was a two-year-old and the seller's word that they were good or better than the string I sold you last year was sufficient. Cattle were classified as northern, central, southern and southern animals and, except in case of severe drought in the preceding years, were pretty nearly uniform in size throughout each section. The prairie section of the state left its indelible imprint on the cattle bred in the open country, while on the coast, as well as the piney woods and the blackjack sections, did the same, thus making classification easy. McCann overtook us early in the evening, and, being an obliging fellow, was induced by Forrest to stand the first guard with Honeyman, so as to make up the proper number of watches, though 
With only two men on guard at a time, it was hardly possible that any of the others would return before daybreak. There was much to be seen in Dodge, and as losing a night's sleep on duty was considered nothing, in hilarious recreation, sleep would be entirely forgotten. McCann had not forgotten us, but had smuggled out a quart of bottle to cut the alkali in our drinking water. But a quart amongst eight of us was not dangerous, so the night passed without incident, though we felt a growing impatience to get into town. As we expected, about sunrise the next morning, our men off on holiday rode into camp, having never closed an eye during the entire night. They brought word from Flood that the herd would only graze over to Sawlog Creek that day, so as to let the remainder of us have a day and a night in town. Lovell would only advance half a month's wages, $25, to the man. It was ample for any personal needs, though we had nearly three months' wages due, and no one protested, for the old man was generally right in his decisions. According to their report, the boys had had a hog-killing time old man Don, having been out with them all night. It seems that McNulta stood well in a class of practical jokers which included the officials of town, and whenever there was anything on the tapis, tapis, he always got the word of it for himself and his friends. During breakfast, Fox quarter night told of this incident in the evening. Some professor, a professor in the occult sciences, I think he called himself, had written to the mayor to know what kind of point Dodge would be for a lecture. The lecture was to be free, but he also intimated that he had a card or two up on the side of his sleeve, by which he expected to graft onto some of the coin of the realm from the wayfaring men as well as the citizens. The mayor turned the letter over to Bat Masterson. There lived a man named Masterson wore a cane and derby hat they called him bat bat masterson the city marshal who answered it and invited the professor to come assuring him he was deeply interested in the occult sciences personally and would take pleasure in securing him a hall and a date besides announcing his coming in the papers i'm wondering if that is spiritualism given the time of this 1880s 1890s because that was when spiritualism was really cool. That would be the occult sciences, I think. He was billed to deliver his lecture last night. Those old longhorns, McNulta and Lovell, got us in with the crowd. And while they didn't know exactly what was coming, they assured us that we couldn't afford to miss it. Well, at the appointed hour in the evening, the hall was packed, not over half being able to find seats. It was safe to say there were over 500 men present, as it was announced for men only. Every gambler in town was there with a fair sprinkling of cowmen in our tribe. At the appointed hour, Masterson, as chairman, rapped for order and in a neat little speech announced the object of the meeting. Bat mentioned the lack of interest in the West for the higher arts and scientists, but bespoke our careful attention to the subject matter under consideration for the evening. He said he felt it necessary to urge the importance of good order, but if anyone had come out of idle curiosity or bent on mischief, as chairman of the meeting and a peace officer of the city, he would certainly brook no interruption. 
After a few other appropriate remarks, he introduced the speaker as Dr. J. Graves Brown, the noted scientist. The professor was an oily-tongued fellow and led off on the prelude to his lecture while the audience was as quiet as mice and grave as owls. After he'd spoken about five minutes and was getting warmed up to his subject, he made an assertion which sounded a little fishy, and someone in the back of the audience yelled out, That's a damned lie! The speaker halted in his discourse and looked at Masterson, who arose and, drawing two six-shooters, looked the audience over as if trying to locate the offender. Laying the guns down on the table, he informed the meeting that another interruption would cost the offender his life if he had to follow him to the Rio Grande or the British possessions. Then he asked the professor, as there would be no further interruptions, to proceed with his lecture. The professor hesitated about going on when Masterson informed him that it was evident that his audience, with the exception of one skulking coyote, was deeply interested <laughs> in the lecture, in the subject, and that no one man could interfere with the freedom of speech and dodge as long as it was a free country and he was a city marshal. After this little talk, the speaker braced and launched out again on his lecture. When he was once more under good headway, he had the occasion to relate an exhibition which he had witnessed while studying his profession in India. The incident related was a trifle rank for anyone to swallow raw. When the same party who'd interrupted before sang out, that's another damned lie. Getting spicy. Masterton came to his feet like a flash, a gun in each hand, saying, Stand up, you measly skunk, so I can see you. Half a dozen men rose in different parts of the house and cut loose at him, and as they did so, the lights went out and the room filled with smoke. Masterton was blazing away with two guns, which so lighted up the rostrum that we could see the professor crouching under the table. Of course they were using blank cartridges, but the audience raised the long yell and poured out through the windows and doors and the lecture was over. A couple of police came in later, so McNulta said, escorted the professor to his room in the hotel and quietly advised him that Dodge was hardly capable of appreciating anything so advanced as a lecture on the occult sciences. I feel like he was set up. Maybe not, but it just feels a bit like a setup. Breakfast over, Honeyman ran in the Ramuda, and we caught the best horses in our mounts on which to pay our respects to Dodge. Forrest detailed Broadwheat to wrangle the horses, for he intended to take Honeyman with us. As it was only about six miles over to the saw log, Quince advised that they graze along Duck Creek until after dinner, then graze over to the former stream during the afternoon. Before leaving, we rode over and looked out the trail after it left Duck, for it was quite possible we might return during the night, and we requested McCann to hang out lanterns, elevated on the end of the wagon tongue as a beacon. After taking our bearings, we reined southward over the divide to Dodge. On reaching Dodge, we rode up to the right house where Flood Medicine directed our cavalcade across the railway to the livery stable, proprietor of which was a friend of Lovell's. We unsaddled and turned our horses into a large corral, and while we were in the office of the livery, surrendering our artillery, Flood came in and handed each of us $25 in gold, warning us that when it was gone, no more would be advanced. On receipt of the money, we scattered like partridges before a gunner. 
Within an hour or two, we began to return to the stable by ones and twos and were stowing in our saddles pockets our purchases, which ran from needles to thread to 45 cartridges, every mother's son reflecting on the art of the barber, while John Officer had his blonde mustaches blackened, waxed, and curled like a French dancing master. If some of you boys will hold him, said Moss Strayhorn, commenting on Officer's appearance, I'd like to take a good smell of him, just to see if he took oil up there where the end of his necks haired over. As Officer had already had several dinks comfortably stowed away under his belt and stood up strong six feet two, none of us volunteered. After packing away our plunder, we sauntered around town, drinking moderately and visiting the various saloons and gambling houses. I clung to my bunkie, the rebel, during the rounds, for I had learned to like him and had confidence he would lead me into no indiscretions. At Long Branch, we found Quince Forrest and White Roundtree playing the Faro Bank, the former keeping cases. They never recognized us, but were answering a great many questions asked by the dealer and lookout regarding the possible volume of cattle drive that year. Down at another gambling house, the rebel met Ben Thompson, a Faro dealer not on duty and an old cavalry comrade, and the two cronied around for over an hour like long-lost brothers pledging anew their friendship over several social glasses in which I was always included. There was no telling how long this reunion would have lasted, but happily for my sake, Lovell, who'd been asleep all morning, started to round us up for dinner with him at the Wright House, which was that day a famous hostelry patronized almost exclusively by the Texas cowmen and cattle buyer. We made the rounds of the gambling houses looking for our crowd. We ran across three of the boys, piking at a Monty game, who came with us reluctantly. Then, guided by Lovell, we started for the Long Branch when we felt certain we would find Forrest and Roundtree, if they had any money left. Forrest was broke, which made him ready to come, and Roundtree, though quite a winner, out of deference to our employer's wishes, cashed in and joined us. Old man Don could hardly do enough for us, and before we could reach the right house, had lined us up against three different bars, and while I had confidence in my navigable capacity, I found that they were coming a little too fast and free. Seeing as I had scarcely drunk anything in three months but branch water, as we lined up at the right house bar for the final before dinner, the rebel, who was standing next to me, entered a waiver and took a cigar, which I understood to be a hint, and I did likewise. We had a splendid dinner. Our outfit with McNulta occupied a 10-chair table, while the opposite side of the room was another large table occupied principally by drovers who were waiting for their cattle herds to arrive. Among those at the latter table, whom I now remember, was Uncle Henry Stevens, Jesse Ellison, Lum Slaughter, John Blocker, Ike Pryor, Dunn Houston, and last but not least, Colonel Shanghai Pierce. The latter was possibly the most widely known cowman between the Rio Grande and the British possessions. I'm assuming that's Canada. Ah. He stood six feet four in his stockings, was gaunt and raw-boned, and a possessor of a voice which, even in ordinary conversation, could be distinctly heard across the street. No, I'll not ship any more cattle to your town, said Pierce. To a cattle solicitor during dinner, his voice in righteous indignation resounding like a foghorn throughout the dining room. Until you can adjust your yardage charges, 
Listen, I can go right up into the heart of your city and get a room for myself with a nice clean bed in it, plenty of soap, water, and towels, and I can occupy that room for 24 hours for two bits. And your stockyards way out in the suburbs want to charge me 20 cents a head and let my steer stand out in the weather. After the dinner, all the boys, with the exception of Priest and myself, return to the gambling houses as though anxious to work overtime. Before leaving the hotel, Forrest effected the loan of ten from Roundtree, and the turn returned to the Long Branch, while the others eagerly sought out a Monty game. But I was fascinated with the conversation of these old cowmen, and sat around for several hours listening to their yarns and cattle talk. I was selling a thousand beef steers one time to some Yankee army contractors, Pierce was narrating to occultive listeners, when I I got the idea that they were not up to snuff in receiving cattle out on the prairie. I was holding a herd of about 3,000, and they'd agreed to take a running cut, which showed that they had the receiving agent fixed. My foreman and I were counting the cattle when they came between us. But the steers were wild, long-legged coasters, and came through between us like scared wolves. I'd lost count several times, but guessed at them and started over, the cattle still coming like a whirlwind. And when I thought about 900 had passed us, I cut them off and sang out, Here they come and there they go, just an even thousand by Gatlings. What do you make, Bill? Just an even thousand, Colonel, replied my foreman. Of course the contractors were counting at the same time, and I suppose they didn't like to admit they couldn't count a thousand cattle where anyone else could, and never asked for a recount, but accepted and paid for them. They had hired an outfit, held the cattle outside that night, but the next day when they cut them into car lots and shipped them, they were a hundred and eighteen short. They wanted to come back on me and make them good, but shucks, I wasn't responsible if their Jim Crow outfit lost the cattle. Along early in the evening, Flood advised us boys to return to the herd with them, but all the crowd wanted to stay in town and see the sights. Lovell interceded on our behalf and promised to see that we left town in good time to be in camp before the herd was ready to move the next morning. On this assurance, Flood saddled up and started for the saw log, having ample time to make the ride before dark. By this time, most of the boys had worn off the wire edge for gambling and were comparing notes. Three of them were broke, but Quince Forrest had turned the tables and was over a clean hundred winner for the day. Those who had no money, fortunately, had good credit with those of us who had, for there was much yet to be seen. And in Dodge, in 82, it took money to see the elephant. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Probably to see the good stuff. There were several variety theaters, a number of dance halls, and other resorts which like the wicked flourish best under the darkness. After supper, just at about dusk, we went over to the stable, caught our horses, saddled them, and tied them up for the night. We fully expected to leave town by 10 o'clock, for it was a good 12-mile ride to the saw log, and making the rounds of the variety theaters and dance halls, we hung together. Lovell excused himself early in the evening, and at parting we assured him that the outfit would leave for camp before midnight. We were enjoying ourselves immensely over at the Lone Star Dance Hall, where an incident occurred in which we were entirely neglected the good advice of McNulta, and had the sensation of hearing lead whistle and cry around our ears before we got away from town. Quince Forrest was spending his winnings as well, and drinking freely at the end of the quadrille, gave vent to his hilarity in the old-fashioned Comanche yell. The bouncer of the dance hall had his eye on our crowd, and at the end of a change took Quince to task. He was a surly brute. Instead of couching his request in appropriate language, threatened to throw him out of the house. Big up! 
I was dancing in the same set with a red-haired, freckle-faced girl who clutched my arm and wished to know if my friend was armed. I assured her... I assured her that my friend was not, or we would have had notice of it before the bouncer's invective was ended. At the conclusion of the dance, Quince and the rebel passed out, giving the rest of us word to remain as though nothing was wrong. In the course of half an hour, Priest returned and asked us to take our leave one at a time without attracting any attention and meet at the stable. I remained until the last and noticed the rebel and the bouncer were taking a drink together at the bar, the former apparently in a most amiable mood. We passed out together shortly afterwards and found the other boys mounted and awaiting our return, it now being about midnight. It took but a moment to secure our guns, and once in the saddle, we rode through town in the direction of the herd. On the outskirts of the town, we halted. I'm going back to that dance hall, said Forrest, and have one round at least with that horror herder. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> ah. No man who walks this old earth can insult me as he did, but not if he has a hundred stars on him. If any of you don't want to go along, ride right on to camp, but I'd like to have you all go. And when I take his measure, it will be the signal to the rest of you to put out the lights. All that's going, come on! There were no dissenters to the program. I saw at a glance that my bunkie was heart and soul in the play and took my cue and kept my mouth shut. This is not gonna go well. I were totally drunk and liquored up. Let's start a fight where we were told to not start a fight. We circled round the town to a vacant lot within a block of the rear of the dance hall. Honeymoon was left to hold the horses. Then, taking off our belts and hanging them on the pommels of our saddles, we secreted our six shooters inside the waistband of our trousers. The hall was still crowded with the revelers as we entered, a few at a time, Forrest and Priest being the last to arrive. Forrest had changed hats with the rebel who always wore a black one, and the bouncer circulated around. Quint stepped squarely in front of him. There was no waste of words, but a gun barrel flashed in the lamplight, and the bouncer, struck with the six-shooter, fell like a beast. Before the bewildered spectators could raise a hand, five six-shooters turned into the ceiling. The lights went out at the first fire, and amidst the rush of men and screaming of women, we reached the outside, and within a minute were in our saddles. All would have gone well if we had returned by the same route and avoided the town. But after crossing the railroad track, anger and pride having not been properly satisfied, we rode through town. On entering the main street, leading north and opposite our bridge on the river, somebody of our party in the rear turned his gun loose in the air. The rebel and I were riding into the lead, and at the clattering of hooves and shooting behind us, our horses started on the run, the shooting by this time having become general. After the street crossing, I noticed a rope of fire belching from a Winchester in the doorway of a store building. There was no doubt in my mind, but we were the object of the manipulator of that carbine, and as we reached the next cross street, a man kneeling in the shadow of the building opened fire on us with a six-shooter. Priest reined in his horse, having not wasted cartridges in the open-air shooting, returned the compliment until he emptied his gun. By this time, every officer in town was throwing lead after a bus, some of which cried a little too close to comfort. When there was no longer any shooting on our flanks. We turned into a cross street and soon left the lead behind us. At the outskirts of town, we slowed our horses and took it leisurely for a mile or so. When Quince Forrest halted us and said, I'm gonna drop out of here and see if anyone follows. I want to be alone so that if any officers try to follow us up, I can have it out with them. As if there was no time to lose in parlaying, and as he had a good horse, we rode away and left him. On reaching camp, we secured a few hours sleep 
But the next morning, to our surprise, Forrest failed to appear. We explained the situation to Flood, who said if he did not show up by noon, he would go back and look for him. We felt positive that he would not dare to go back to town. And if he was lost, as soon as the sun arose, he would be able to get his bearing. While we were nooning about, about seven miles north of the saw log, someone noticed a buggy coming up the trail. As it came nearer, we saw there were two occupants of the rig besides the driver. When it drew up, old Quince, still wearing the rebel's hat, stepped out of the rig, dragged out his saddle from under the seat, and invited his companions to dinner. They both declined. When Forrest, taking out his purse, handed a $20 gold piece to the driver with an oath, then he asked the other man what he owed him, but the latter very haughtily declined any recompense, and the conveyance drove away. I suppose you fellas don't know what all this means, said Quince, as he filled the plate and sat down in the shade of a wagon. Well, that horse of mine got a bullet plugged into him last night while we were leaving town, and before I could get him to Duck Creek, he died on me. I carried my saddle and blankets until daylight when I hid in a drawer and waited for something to turn up. I thought some of you would come back and look for me sometime, for I knew you wouldn't understand it, when all of a sudden, here comes this livery rig, along with that drummer. Going out to Jetmore, I believe he said. I explained what I wanted, but he decided that his business was more important than mine and refused me. I refused the matter to Judge Colt, and the judge decided it was more important that I overtake this herd. I'd have made him take pay, too. Only... He acted so mean about it. After dinner, fearing arrest, Forrest took a horse and rode ahead out to the Solomon River. We were a glum outfit that afternoon, but after a good night's rest, we're again fresh as daisies. When McCann started to get breakfast, he hung his coat on the end of the wagon rod while he went to get a bucket of water. During his absence, John Officer was noticed slipping something into Barney's coat pocket. And after breakfast, when our cook went to get his coat for his tobacco, he unearthed a lady's cambric handkerchief, nicely embroidered, and a silver-mounted garter. He looked at the articles a moment, and grasping the situation at a glance, raised his eye over the outfit for the culprit. But there was not a word or a smile. He walked over and threw the articles in the fire, remarking, Good whiskey and bad women will be the ruin of you ones yet. And there we go. This was maybe too wild a story for young Rodney. But he took the baby. What's Basmatron? Oh, you're, you're crazy. You're wild. You're a wildcat. <laughs>